0: I know that for those of you who came last week, um, my colleague and good friend Joseph Goldstein came to speak. I'm glad about that. And I'd like to follow up from his talk on the kind of wise understanding and effort that he spoke of to go back to a central theme of how one works with the experiences of this human life in a meditative way. When I went to the forest monastery many years ago to study with the master Ajahn Chah, he described the practice of meditation that we do here as taking the one seat in the center of all things. He said, if you wish to meditate and awaken or become free, you don't have to go far and you don't have to look for special events or experiences. All you have to do is sit down in this human form that you've been given, this human life, halfway between heaven and earth on this seat and sense the capacity to awaken. And as you sit, it's as if you sit in a room that has six doors and windows. Open all the windows and all the doors and put one chair in the center and let whatever wants to come and go through the windows and doors. And your only task is to stay in that seat and keep your eyes and ears open and keep your heart open. And all the rest will follow from that. So this was his simple instructions to take this human life that we're given and as a Buddha, your own Buddha nature, as a being of compassion, to sit in the midst of it and open to the experience of being a human being alive, not trying to gain or get or fix or make anything, but to sense it deeply as it is. When the Buddha taught, he was periodically challenged by yogis who said he wasn't strict enough, he hadn't done enough, he hadn't practiced enough. You know, those voices, we all have them too, the inner voices that come and say, you haven't done enough, if only you'd done more, you'd be better. Well, these were people who came and said that to the Buddha, at least as the story is told. And even um, his old colleagues that he had practiced with, after sitting under the tree of enlightenment and defeating Mara, the um, god or the personification of all difficulties and evils in India, after becoming enlightened, he went to seek out the other yogis and um, colleagues that he had practiced with, companions, and came to find them in the forest, in the deer park outside of Benares. Um, and they wouldn't listen to him. And they said, you've gone soft on us. We fast, we do ascetic practices, and you now take food and you, you know, take care of yourself and you bathe and so forth. Or other yogis would come and say, you're not really... Um, practicing the, the, the great ascetic practices of India. We fast, we do austerities, we sit on beds of nails, we do all this, and you've given up. I mean, how, what kind of a model are you? And the Buddha sat down and looked back at them with his lion's roar and said, I have done it all. I have sat on the sands of the banks of the Ganges in the hot season staring at the sun in the hottest of days. I've eaten so little food that I've got down to one rice grain a day and became so thin that if I touched the front of my body, I would touch the backbone. Um, and people would say, the, the sage Siddhartha has died, and others would say, no, he hasn't died yet, he's just fasted nearly to death. He said, whatever difficult ascetic practice has ever been done in this continent of India, I have done it all. And now I have stopped. I have stopped struggling against myself. I have stopped struggling against a single thing. And in all the ten million universes, with their heavens and hells and all the lifetimes of experience that can happen, this is not your day-to-day emotional swings he's talking about, this is everything, right? In the midst of every possibility, I finally have taken the seat of rest in the center of it all and open my eyes to see it clearly and open the heart of compassion and found a freedom in the midst of all these realms of experiences." This was his lion's roar. Now, a number of us could do our own lion's roar, probably, because we've tried a lot of things, too. Of course, maybe it wasn't beds of nails, but we tried consumerism, collecting, we tried money, We've tried travel, luxury cars, relationships, sex and drugs and rock and roll without, you know, and yoga and meditation and body work and exercise and therapy and, you know, all those kinds of things. Trying somehow to become something. I don't know what you're trying to become, but trying to become something as if we weren't that already. This is a poem that's vaguely related to this from the New Yorker ratty-go-batty. What a joke, this planet. The inmates running the asylum, see them in their little cars whizzing, stop and go, riding the escalators, flashing their shiny finery, hoarding, hawking, wearing dark glasses indoors. <laughs> the rest of the animals continue rational, sleeping in caves or nests in winter, pursuing food, marking territory clearly, None of this human petulance. What can be done to restore order? I say, give the government over to the insects for the tidy digestion of all that dung and give the infants to the higher mammals with the softest fur. May it be done. So we live in times where things are speedy and complex and we get the messages that we need more and we need to do more and we have to fix more and make more and get more and be better in all these ways. Um, And we've tried everything. There's a story from the Hindu tradition of a man who decided to roam the world looking for his heart's desire. He was going to fulfill himself completely. And he went from place to place, country to country, peoples, food, every possible thing, but never was completely satisfied. And one day after all this wandering and seeking and looking, he came to a beautiful valley and there was a large and um, glorious-looking tree in the center of this valley, and he sat down under it to rest, finally stopping to seek. He said, this is really a beautiful valley and a beautiful tree. I could be pretty happy here if only I had, oh, a cottage or a house." And no sooner had he thought that than a cottage, beautiful cottage, appeared. What he didn't realize is he had sat underneath the wish-fulfilling tree, this magical tree. And he saw the house and he was quite contented for some minutes. And then he said, but it would get lonely here if only I had some beautiful companion to share it with. And sure enough, a moment later out of the door came this beautiful companion who beckoned to him, Oh, husband, how good to see you again. Where have you been in your travels? You know, very welcoming. He said, this is great, but I'm a little thirsty and hungry after all this. It would be nice to have something to eat. And the moment he thought of it, a great banquet table appeared with fine foods and wonderful drinks. He went and partook of this beautiful banquet, resting there. But as he got fuller, he got a little tired, he said, it would be nice if someone would serve it to me so I didn't have to do this myself. And sure enough, the butler appeared and said, yes, would you like anything more, perhaps desserts? You know? And he had his fill, and he sat there contemplating the beautiful house, the wonderful people around, the food. He said, you know, this is pretty strange. It's kind of magical. I wonder if it comes from this spot or this tree. This must be some kind of a magical tree. Maybe there's some kind of demon that lives in it. I wonder if there's a demon here. And sure enough, a demon appeared. And then he thought, oh my, he's going to eat me. And the demon did. And that's the end of the story. (laughs) Now this is a good description of meditation as well. (laughs) Because we sit and we begin to pay attention to our experience of this life. We take that seat in the center. And the mind plays out endless possibilities of what we should be and where we should go and what's wrong and what's right and so forth. Have you noticed? The mind is the forerunner of all things, it says in the Buddhist, in the beginning of the Dhammapada, the Buddhist text. With the mind we make the world. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. Speak or act with an impure mind or heart, and trouble will follow you as surely as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. The mind is the forerunner of things. What we are arises with our thoughts. Speak or act with a pure mind or a pure heart, and happiness will follow you as surely as your own shadow, unshakable. (coughs) So we sit in meditation and all these thoughts of what we should be and do and how we should make things different and what's wrong and what's right comes. The mind does its dance. But the mind, as you notice, is also somewhat unreliable. As Henry Miller wrote at one point, the situation reached the heights of the ludicrous when I had described him fully and then realized everything I had written about the man, I could very well have said the opposite from another point of view. We think one thing from the mind and then another comes up and it makes so many plans about how things should be and dialogues, and debates, and forums, and elections, and dictators, and circles, and hopes, and fantasies, and expectations. The mind does all of that. So what to do? The Buddha's suggestion in this image is to take the one seat in the center of all this and stop. Just to be present in the moment, as things are, to open to this mystery of being alive. Now when I started to teach, and when I also started to work as a psychologist 20-some years ago, I used to see people come to meditate or people come to work with me in different ways, and I'd see the things they struggled with with compulsion or aggression or greed or laziness or confusion, the things that are called the hindrances in Buddhist teaching, and find out ways to try and work with those. But over the years, as I have listened, and listened not just with the kind of original eye of seeing what was going on, but listening more deeply, a kind of listening with the heart, the theme that's come over and over underneath all of those, is how many of us are afraid. Our hearts are frightened to let go, to touch all the things that arise in our experience, to touch this life that's given to us. How many moments we have when we're frightened to be here, frightened of joy, sometimes people are afraid of pleasure, frightened of sorrow or grief, frightened to experience the river of change that is this human life, this changing dance that appears unexpectedly, over and over, unknown, where it comes from, of thoughts, feelings, out of which everything comes and is made. And if we look for a moment, if we stop and take that seat in the center, our breath, our thoughts, our feelings, they arise and then they vanish. Where do they go? Where do they come from? like a river coming out of nowhere and disappearing. We are this river. We're not separate from it. I remember a woman who I came to admire a great deal. Her name was Jocelyn King, and she was a very fine yogi, meditator, kind of a teacher. She went to Burma with her husband in the early sixties. He was a professor of Buddhist studies and he was going to write He did write a number of books about Burmese Buddhism. She didn't know anything about being a professor, so she just went to the monasteries and sat down and meditated. And he published a couple of books, and she got enlightened. That was kind of their deal. (laughs) And I remember going to visit them. And, you know, he and I would have talks about different monasteries and teachers in Burma in kind of theoretical ways. And she'd be making lunch and doing the dishes, and I was there while we were kind of working cleaning up lunch one day and doing the dishes, and she said, I don't understand it. Most people prefer the quicksand of being something, as if that would help them, instead of resting in the firm ground of emptiness. And then she went to wash the next dish. Right? So, this is cool. <laughs> to take this one seat in the center of our experience to take this seat in the reality of the present is to, to discover how to fully open to this unfolding, unknowable, changing life we've been given and to trust it somehow, to sense the grace of being alive that the breath will breathe itself, that thoughts will come, that feelings will rise and fall and somehow learn to swim in it rather than fight it and be worried about it and try and fix it. It really is, in a way, like learning to swim. I like to use this image and have used it in other talks. The the childhood memories that I have, many of you may have, when you try to learn to swim and you don't believe the water's going to hold you and you're paddling and trying to keep your head up madly, and then that one moment where finally you just lay back, maybe somebody's holding you underneath, and you let go and you realize the water will support you, and that actually you can float. And it's a magic moment. Oh, I can let go and I'm supported. And the same thing begins to happen in the process of meditation. There comes a moment where you actually can let go and feel a trust in being, not in becoming something, but just in floating in being, in awareness itself. Now, to open this way requires a kind of balance. The yang, the yin and yang, the yang qualities of strength and fearlessness, the kind of warrior qualities. It takes a kind of courage, that's one side, to really open to whatever presents itself. But it also takes the yin qualities of surrender and receptivity and compassion to be soft enough to receive, to be spacious enough to receive, as well as courageous. Both of those balanced. And you can sense as you meditate over time how both that strength of heart grows as well as that receptivity. Now, the instructions for the kind of presence or mindfulness, the sacred presence of meditation, that are at the heart of the Buddhist practice is the foundations of mindfulness. And the first place of this sacred attention, of this care, is this body itself that we've been given, this amazing thing of incarnating, of having a human body. And we start, as we did tonight in many, many retreats and years, start just simply with this universal presence with the breath to stop and take a seat in the middle of our life and feel the breath and connect with it. And there's a process of things settling down which is not easy, because the breath gets too soft and you have to make the attention very soft to actually feel where is the breath, where did it go? Or it feels contracted, "Ah, I can't breathe. And then what do you do? Oh, I should be breathing deeper. That's not the idea. The idea is to note, oh, it's very contracted. And just let it be contracted with a soft attention, just sitting in the midst of contraction or resistance. Or I'm frustrated or it's too slow or it's too fast. To let the breath breathe itself and have its own rhythms and sit with the doors and windows open and simply notice what the breath wants to do of itself and after some time there comes a settling, a connection with the breathing. Calm, excitement, joy, sorrow, they come in relation to the breath. There's a story in India, this is from Larry Rosenberg's new book on breathing meditation, breath by breath. There was a conference of all the human faculties, all the senses, which are the six outer senses and the sense of the mind. As at many meetings, they first had to decide who would be put in charge. Sight popped up and put in its bid, creating beautiful images that had everyone enraptured. Smell arose and created powerful and haunting aromas that left everyone tingling with anticipation. But taste could top that with astounding delicate flavors from all the world's cuisines. Me, me, the tongue said. Hearing created exquisite harmonies that brought everyone to tears. And the body brought on physical sensations that had everyone in ecstasy. And the mind spun spun out intellectual theories that took on beauty by the depths of the truth they expressed. And along came the breath. Not even one of the senses. And said it wanted to be in charge. All it could present was the simple in and out breath not terribly impressive in the face of all these other fantastic experiences. No one even noticed it. The other senses got into a tremendous argument about which one of them would be chosen. The breath in its disappointment began walking away, and the images began to fade. The tastes lost their savor, the sounds diminished. Wait, wait, the senses called out, come back, you can lead, we need you. And the breath came back and took its proper place. So it's that way of being with the breath. It's the breath in the center of things, feeling the soft or long or short or shallow or tight or relaxed breath, all the kinds of breath, and using it to let us be open to the flow of life itself. And in the same way, as we feel the breath, we begin to re-inhabit this human body, this foundation of mindfulness of the body. And as we sit, there's tensions and pains and patterns of holding, you all know that. You sit for a little while and you feel the places that tension has built up, the armor, the fear. And what's required is to touch that, the pain, the aversion, the prickles, the itching, the tingling, the heat, all of those things with kindness. It's as if you feel the pain and instead of contracting around it, you feel the contraction and make space and let the pain float and the resistance gets named, oh, there's contraction, contraction. And you name each one and just give each a space to open or increase or intensify or move as they will, trusting that the body will open, which it does if you listen and bring kindness to it. This is from Eduardo Galeano. The church teaches the body is a sin. Science teaches the body is a machine. Advertising teaches the body is a business. The body says, I am a fiesta. (laughs) It's nice, isn't it? The re-inhabiting of the body is a place of wisdom. Our wisdom comes through this breath and body, this embodied humanity. With pain and pleasure, contraction and expansion, joy and sorrow, we learn a place of freedom and wisdom. Not to run, not to react, but allow the deepest energies of this physical life to open while we take the one seat. Then there's the mind another of the foundations of mindfulness. You sit and take this seat, and you all know what the mind does. It's this thing Mark Twain, I'd like to quote from him, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, right? (laughs) (laughs) What it does. You sit there and there's the planning mind, and the wandering mind, and the worried mind, and the guilt-ridden mind, and the mind that redoes things, you know, and the remembering mind, and the judging mind, and the scattered mind, and the critical mind, and the creative mind, and the thoughtful mind, and the stupid mind, you know. And what do you do? You can bow to it. Thank you for your opinion. I like that. Thanks, I appreciate that opinion as well. And it waits for a little bit of space. You sit and you get quiet, the body settles down, and then the unfinished business of your life comes, doesn't it? You didn't think about that, what about those things? How about her or him? Or if you're not unfinished business, then you have creativity attacks, right? You're sitting there just minding your own business and it's quiet and it says, well, let's go do this and that, and you could write this and choreograph that and build that. Thank you for your opinion, right. So to sit is to make space for all of this, to rest in the body and the breath, to rest in the heart of compassion, and let the mind do its dance and allow it to begin to settle, to see the thoughts rise and fall like waves of the ocean, not to take it too seriously. If you take your mind seriously, you're in trouble. <laughs> so you learn about the mind, you use it rather than being enslaved to it, basically, cough by it. Then the same, the awareness of emotions and feelings, the pleasant ones, the unpleasant ones, that color so much of our days, make so many reactions. The storms, the deep sorrows of the heart, the frustration and loneliness, the feelings of regret, the anger, the heart of desire, the appreciation, the connectedness, the joy, the contentment, the well-being. I like these lists, I have this list of 500 feelings. Compassionate, curious, claustrophobic, concentrated, calm, grateful, grave, greedy, frightened, fearful, honored, humbled, embarrassed, prudish, pleased, proud, amused, apathetic, argumentative, apoplectic, antagonistic, antsy, ambivalent, ambitious, driven, delighted, depressed, disheartened, broken-hearted, blissful, jealous, jovial, joyful, spacious, sober, sad, silly, sympathetic, sleepy. All these different moods that come. You know, like animals in the zoo, they open the cages. They come and visit. So to take the one seat is to become the space which allows these to rise and fall, to bow to them, to say, oh, there's the lions and tigers, oh, there's the koala bears, you know, there's the lizards, to let all the creatures of the psyche arise, to acknowledge them and to rest in this spacious awareness. Sounds simple, doesn't it? (laughs) To find that place of peace in the center. But the moods, the plans, the critical mind, the sensations, what's pleasant and unpleasant, they're actually hard because we've been conditioned to react to them so much, to say, I like this, yes, you're right, no, you're wrong, to get in struggle with them, to believe them, to try to do all these things. So what we're learning is no plans, no exploits, no expectations. Just to sit in the middle and say, oh, this too, thank you, to bow to it. To see what is honestly present and touch it with the great heart of kindness. Not to battle against ourselves, not to try to improve ourselves, not to make it a certain way. We've done that for so long, trying to improve ourselves. Hasn't even worked very well in many cases, if we're honest about it. It's hard enough without that, just to be with our humanity, with our life. It's like the story from the Christian Desert Fathers. Tell us, Master, what should we do, said a young novice, when we see one of the other young brothers dozing away during the sacred services. Should we pinch them, remind them to awaken? And the old abbot said, actually, if I saw a brother sleeping, I would put his head on my knees and let him rest." So this place of taking the one seat allows us to receive what arises, this too, this too, with deep kindness and attention, this too, the joys, the sorrows, the grief, the love. And this is what the Buddha said to his friends. He said, I've stopped running. I've stopped fighting. Let me see the world just as it is. With its tremendous pain and its unspeakable beauty, let me see it just as it is. Zen master Suzuki Roshi puts it this way. He said, the basic teaching of Buddhism is the teaching of transiency or change that everything constantly changes is the basic truth of our existence. No one can deny this truth and all the teachings of the Buddha are condensed within it. It's the teaching for wherever we go, it's true. Without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure. But unfortunately, although it is true, it is difficult for us to accept this truth and because we cannot accept the truth of transiency we suffer. When we realize the everlasting truth that everything changes and find our composure in it, then we find ourselves in nirvana. This one seat, this place in the middle to be with life as it is and to rest in the heart, to rest in the breath, to rest in the body. Thomas Merton described this quality in his Asian journals when he went to visit the great stone statues of the Buddha in Polonarua in Sri Lanka. They are really quite magnificent. They're these huge marble statues half carved out of a cliff of the Buddha seated or lying down. Thomas Merton said they were more alive than a number of people that he knew. And he said, I walked in the morning across the green meadow in front of them barefoot, slightly moist grass, and saw them seating there, the most alive, most wonderful pieces of art I've ever seen. Looking at these Buddhas, peaceful and empty, The silence of these extraordinary faces, the great smiles, huge and subtle, filled with every possibility, questioning nothing, rejecting nothing. The great smiles of peace, not of emotional resignation, but of a peace that is seen through every question without trying to discredit anyone or anything. The peace without refutation, the peace of being with all things as they are. Now when we sit in an honorable way in meditation, whatever it is that we've run from will appear. That's how it works. It's waiting for you to take time to listen. If it's death you've run from, eventually it will come. That's what you fear or weakness, or grief, or pain that you felt that you've never let yourself experience or longing. For many in meditation, it's not death, but it's life. The fear of our own bodies, of loving one another, of being fully alive. You can find a kind of um, What Alan Watts called a spiritual practice, it becomes a kind of grim duty. You know, I've got to go to therapy and jog every day and do my meditation, kind of like a self-improvement thing. Um, But life is really a problem, and meditation makes it bearable. Life is a sexually transmitted disease that's always fatal, someone (laughs) said. To take the one seat in the middle of all of our human life is to open to what Zorba the Greek called the whole catastrophe. And this kind of sitting asks strength and a deep surrender, an embodied attention, a a, a life-giving attention to what is, and a kindness, and it's important. As we do this, as we learn to find this center, and then to bring it alive in our life, to meet one another in the world as we work and travel in our families, in our communities, to come from that place of stillness, of openness, rather than all the distractions and plans. It's important to remember and understand that what we initially encounter so frequently in meditation, the pain, The conflict, the unfinished business, the restlessness, the things that we've run from for years, the stuff that I like to call the Freudian layer, right, that you will meet at some point. That as we touch all those things, that that is not who we are. And the idea isn't to fix all of that, but to bow to it, to touch it with compassion, to not be so afraid of all of our humanness. And as we touch the pain, the conflict, the aversion, the unfinished business, with awareness, with clarity, with a heart of compassion, under all of that there comes a sense of renewal, a peacefulness, a ground of goodness, of basic goodness that is your true nature that is your Buddha nature. And it's there, and in a moment you can touch into that. You're completely lost and freaked out and frightened, and in a moment you say, "Well, wow, freaking out, wasn't he? You know, I've really lost it, haven't I? And in that moment, oh, it's just that, lost it. And in that moment there's this great space, or I was so sad, I didn't think I could do this, it was so difficult. Boy, that was hard, wasn't it? And the moment that voice come, boy that was hard, that's the voice that's in that seat that says that was a difficult moment, a difficult day. And underneath all those things, this pure awareness, which is always there for you, feeling the breath, knowing the thoughts, recognizing what comes and goes, is like groundwater, it's your Buddha nature, your human spirit. And if you learn, to pay attention, you'll see how utterly trustworthy it is. That anger comes and if you let your anger come you'll see it's because you were afraid or hurt in some way or in pain. And that really the anger is a love of justice or fairness that comes and you find that strength not through conflict but because it's part of who you are, part of your heart. Or you see all these desires and longings come And if you bow to each and let yourself know them, the deepest longings come. They're really to be whole, to be complete, to be loved, to be connected with all things. And in allowing them, they will lead you to that. Under all these difficulties, under the Freudian layer and all the things we struggle to improve and fight with, under the sorrows, is a force of life that is unstoppable and beautiful and completely trustworthy. I remember it from visiting, working in the Cambodian refugee camp some years ago with my teacher, Mako Sananda. And in the camp that I spent the most time in, Sakeo, after hundreds of thousands of refugees poured out of Cambodia on the border of Thailand from the terrible um, Holocaust there. Um, They were in these camps on dry, barren rice paddies in the hot season. Everybody had a little bamboo hut that was about four feet wide and six feet long, and then a kind of grass roof. And you know, there were 50 or 100,000 people in each camp with these huts. And outside of each hut there was a little kind of open doorway, a place to sleep, and the UN was bringing food and medicine. between the huts there was about a half a yard of land and then there was the next hut. And in front of each hut there was a a half a yard and then there was a little path in the next hut. And by the time I got there people had been in the refugee camp for anywhere from three to six months. And in front of most huts was a garden. And it was just astonishing because these were people who had suffered um, in most Every case, the loss of the majority of their family members. And there would be an uncle and one niece, or there would be a mother who had one of five children left. The rest had died. The husband had died. The grandparents had died. Incredible suffering. And it was just the remnants of these families who had seen some of the most horrendous things happen. And there they were in this hot season in these huts. And the water to grow the garden was this big pit well that was dug um, very, very deep. You walked to the far end of the camp, and then you had to walk down the spiral path. It was like half a mile to the far end of the camp, carrying um, these uh, sticks with buckets at the end, and wait in an hour-long line to get to the well at the bottom that the bulldozers had dug, and dig your, dip your buckets in, and then walk all the way back to water your garden. And in front of almost every hut there were little bean plants and squash plants and things that were growing. And it was astonishing to see. It was as if something in these human beings, like the grass that pushes itself up through the cracks in the sidewalk, would not be stopped. The force, this life force, is unstoppable. And to practice, to take this seat in the midst of all things, is to discover this, to feel this trust of spirit. As Martin Luther King said after the church was bombed, people died. He said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. We will soon wear you down with our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win your freedom in the process. Soul force. And this is the capacity of our being, of the great heart of compassion, of the heart of a Buddha that is your birthright, of consciousness and awareness that can embrace this human life. thats what's given to us, the heavens and hells, the joys and sorrows, that our heart is actually great enough to open in the midst of all these, to encompass all these. And the truth is that that's what we most long for, this wholeness this freedom, this connectedness with life and all things in the midst of them. And what's beautiful to see is that it's not far away. It's right where you are. It's in this life as you've been given. Thoreau said, Most people go fishing for their whole life without realizing it's not fish they're after. We do all these things, and it's not really what we're looking for. Many of us have wandered a long time, have sought for a long time, and yet what the heart seeks is not somewhere else or something else, not in the externals. We are what we seek. It is who we are already. I remember a man in this community who died as many, many, beautiful young men have, especially in the AIDS epidemic, um, in the early years of it. His name was Ron. And um, he went back to his family in New Jersey when he knew he was close to dying. And they were frightened and upset, and they expressed their fear by being angry with them. How could you, you know, it was hard enough to accept you as a gay man, and now you've got this disease and, you know, you're disgracing us. And and his sister, who was a very successful kind of entrepreneur, business person, family person, looked at him and said, you know, you've wasted your life, and now look how you're dying, which really hurt. And he realized she said it because she was so frightened, what she didn't understand. So he came back here to San Francisco to some friends and to die here, and I remember going to visit with him and he told me this story, and he said, it really made me think, have I wasted my life? He was a cook, he'd worked in several different kinds of restaurants and communities, he'd done different things. He said, you know, I haven't done very much, no great exploits with my life, no great great things. He said, but when I thought about it for a long time, he said, I realized I've been basically very kind to people which was true, he was a quite kind person. He said, and I found the Dharma and maybe that's enough for one lifetime. To be kind to people and to find that, your own Dharma of truth, of awakening in yourself. So when we sit, it's actually a giving up of control, of plans, of struggle to discover how to let the Tao move through us, to let the breath breathe itself, to let the feelings, the tears and the beauty and the pain and the pleasure open like a flower, petal by petal. Because it knows how to open. You don't even have to worry about it. You just have to sit and take the seat. And what needs to be released will come to you so that you can be fresh and open in your body, in your heart, in your spirit one pedal at a time. And you'll notice as you meditate, whether it's on retreats or coming for a day here or sitting for an hour on Monday or at home, that sometimes the sittings are grief and wailing and tears. And sometimes they're deep loneliness. And sometimes there's this great sweetness that comes or profound calm and rapture. Sometimes it's a release of the knots and fire in the body or like you're in labor there's so much coming. Sometimes it feels like you're resting like an angel, just floating, being with your breath. It's all a kind of labor, if you will, a labor of love, of giving birth to yourself, moment by moment, in fire and sweetness and understanding. And we take this seat in the middle of it, in our humanity, and bring the heart of compassion to all of it. And it's there that we find freedom. (coughs) I remember my old teacher, Srinas in India, this old guru in Bombay. One day a person came to where he was giving his classes, and he was a kind of cantankerous old guy who, you'd come in the room and he'd say, what did you come for? And you could answer on whatever level you dared, you know. Kind of, he was a sort of. I took. It, I used to describe him as a combination of Fritz Perls and Krishnamurti. All right, <laughs> he had the kind of chutzpah of Fritz Perls to do the dialogue, this emptiness of Krishnamurti. Anyway, one day this young man came in and asked a couple questions about liberation or consciousness or awareness or something, and after getting his answer, he just left, never came back. And some days later. Someone raised their hand and they said, Maharaj, what will happen to this young man? You know, he came, he asked a couple questions and then he disappeared. I mean, does there any value in that? And Nisargadat just laughed for a long time. He looked up, he said, it's too late, it is too late. It was wonderful, he laughed, his beautiful voice. I said, what do you mean it's too late? He said, it's too late for him. You see, even the fact that he walked up the second floor stairs in my apartment in Kate Wadi in Bombay, and he came and he asked one question about consciousness, means that that place in him that knows who he really is, that remembers, has begun to awaken. And even if he goes and tries to forget about it and wanders all around the world, he said, it's too late, it's already started. <laughs> And inevitably, he will remember. From the Tao Te Ching. Do you want to improve the world? I don't think it can be done. The world is sacred. It can't be improved. If you tamper with it, you'll ruin it. If you treat it like an object, you'll lose it. There's a time for being ahead and a time for being behind a time for being in motion and a time for being at rest, a time for being vigorous and a time for being exhausted, a time for being in danger and a time for being safe. The master sees things as they are without trying to control them. She lets them go their own way in their own seasons and resides at the center of the circle. She rests with the Tao. It's really such a sweet thing when we have even a moment of that with the people you love, in your own kitchen, in your yard, in your own body, in a moment of meditation. It's like coming back home, yes, yes. And then our activities come from that place of the center. The Zen poet Ryokan, his death poem to end, he wrote what will remain as my legacy, all these years of writing poems and Zen practice, flowers in the spring, the nightingale in the summer, and the crimson leaves of autumn, enough. Let's sit for a moment. as you take this one seat let the mind and heart be open rest in the awareness that lets the breath breathe itself feelings come and go as they will, sensations float and change pleasure and pain in the space of compassion and pure openness rest in this place relax it is your home So not much more to add this evening. Um, for those who were here a couple of weeks ago, it was a real treat to go up to the new meditation hall. and We'll probably do that a couple or a few times a year. Um, if you've been coming to Monday nights over some time, I would strongly recommend that you do a day-long retreat if you've come for a number of months. Or if you've done that already, to try a residential retreat. They're quite extraordinary. The the depth of listening to your own heart and body and being that happens in a week of silence. Um, I'd like to end tonight with a simple chant together then go out into the evening. Um, And the chant is one we use sometimes, it's this word that's the root of the word in Sanskrit to respect or honor, namo. And in India, one greets another person by saying namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. And namo is its Sanskrit root, the honor, bow to. And um, we'll just chant it nine times. And in your mind and heart you can imagine what you'd like to bow to, yourself, your own life, the earth, those who are suffering, those who are needing respect, um, those who you love. Um, in your own ways, offering of your respect, so let's chant together. your week ahead be filled with moments of stillness and centeredness or rest in this Buddha nature, in the center of your being so that your activity moves easily and you rest in that place of understanding thank you thank you also for your support for Spirit Rock, for your generosity, for what you offer see you next week good night Drive politely, please. It's a lot of cars, and a lot of people. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.